0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network podcast. My name is Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, rhetorician, and host of the channels in language and media and communications. I am very, very excited today to present somewhat of an unusual book that makes me think that everyone should write books this way, and it is called The African Lookbook by Catherine E. McKinley, subtitled A Visual History of 100 Years of African Women. And it's a unique book in the sense that it's primarily uh, an archive of photographs that are then supplemented by argument, context, vignettes, uh, quips, and original artwork as well. And I'm just going to start, instead of reading the summary of the book, I'd like to read you the uh, introduction by Edwidge Danticat, because I think it really introduces the dominant themes of the book. And then I'm gonna ask uh, Catherine, who's agreed to be called Catherine, to comment on some of that and then introduce us to the major arguments. All right, so Edward writes that it's sometimes hard to remember in this age of endless selfies, how momentous a single photograph can be. How lucky we are that Catherine E. McKinley has collected this exquisite series of photographs from many corners of the African continent over the last 30 years, creating, though it is called a lookbook, something more akin to a communal family album. Quote, look, she is telling us, I have gathered these images not just for me, but for you and also for them who have reframed and reclaimed the camera as their own. Edwidge goes on to write that at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, millions of ethnographic and anthropological images of Africans, postcards, carte de visite, books, photographic albums, were printed worldwide, coinciding with the golden age of imperialism. These photographs were meant to be salacious, a type of colonial porn, with black female bodies presented partly or fully naked. In those images, even ceremonial dress was meant to be titillating, especially combined with bare breasts. There was documenting, but no such othering in the photographs lovingly gathered here in the book. Here, we are among women who remind us of members of our family. Well, not my family, but like the global family, right? In many cases, the photographs had clearly been planned for and deliberated over. Both the photographer and the photograph seem to have realized that they were creating heirlooms. In that way, the most self-directed of these photographs share much with the selfies of today and that we are possibly seeing exactly what these women want us to see. And so with that excellent introduction to a book that, must be seen in person to be appreciated, but we will do our best. I'd like to introduce Catherine McKinley, author of this fabulous read and, and look, right? <laughs> read and watch. And Catherine, could you just tell us more about the book, uh, comment maybe on Edwidge's introduction, and then talk about this impressive archive you've collected from your travels to Africa over the last 30 years, because you now have a name, it's called The McKinley Collections.
0: As I started to move into my work as a writer and started to do more research about, in this case, the indigo trade in West Africa, and then later about fashion and other things, I started to rely more and more on photos. And I got curious about like, when, are, when were the first photos? When I realized that they were in the mid 1860s, I, I wanted to see what those earliest images would look like. And that kind of led me down a path of, of collecting You would meet people and at the end of spending time together, they would present you with a photograph usually and a kind of, you know, their address and a bid for a pen pal. So there was a very healthy pen pal culture there. And the photographs were just extremely precious. They were expensive to take. And so people would wear their absolute best. And they were just very lovely presentations of people you'd have these, you know, intimate, but fast relationships with. And I kept those and then, so now I have a a large archive. It's primarily images of women who are a disproportionate um, part of the archive. And I've just been continuously collecting. Some are from galleries, so they've become art objects with a very particular kind of politics. Others are vernacular photos that I've picked up along the way from you know, kind of surprising places. And now I'm um, beginning to write more about the images and also to think about how um, we've had one exhibition in Brooklyn two years ago at United Photo Industries. And I'm thinking more about how I want to use them um, for public education and enjoyment, particularly on the African continent. So that, that's kind of where things are right now.
1: Well, that's fascinating. So these started as gift giving mm-hmm. oh how interesting and then of course one of the things that happens is this isn't just a collection of these photographs like mm-hmm. it's not just some photographic book but you actually kind of organize them and comment on them to traverse sort of the the pair all the paradoxes of, of gays and colonialism and, and and independence and looking and being looked at I mean mm-hmm. the kinds of things that are just endemic to photographs and you actually write in your introduction to the book Uh, that while the history of African women photographers is shrouded, explorations of archives of every kind reveal African women to be the disproportionate subjects of colonial and post-colonial image making. Mm -hmm. It is easy to trace in this record what is so often disquieting, vulgar and violent. And then you say that the photos here are kind of, some of them especially are no doubt part of this, what you call a wider ceremony of image making. But then you say, They are presented so that our gaze shifts and the master story begins to fall away. And then you talk about the machinery of sewing, the role of fashion and the role of these different kinds of gazes because you cover what 1870 does 1970. So I mean, you can really see the way in which there's a lot of things that stay the same but then a lot of things that are not the same at all as you move through these collections.
0: Yes, there's there's really, um, most people don't consider much African photography. They think of it through the National Geographic lens, mm. through you know, kind of other limited ways in which it's been presented, particularly in the U.S. But there's really a enormously wide variety of photographies. The studios that opened in the in the mid to late 1800s were African owned. They were European owned. There were Chinese photographers, Middle Eastern photographers. African-Americans, Caribbean men who had traveled and were playing their trade in West Africa. And among all of those studios, there was just so much divergence in terms of style and in terms of power relationships, et cetera. So my idea was really to explore what all that meant and also to privilege the images of women where they had control over their presentation and over their mm-hmm themselves where the photo was either commissioned by a family member or by the woman themselves or where there was an interplay between the photographer and the women that cuts away at some of that expected um, imbalance in power. So I, I really wanted to see like, who are these women behind what we think we know about imagery of African women?
1: Yeah, and that's sort of where the the vignettes are so interesting, because some of them are long, because there's a lot of context there. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. there's, there's one I love, that's just an image, I think it's untitled, I think we don't know the person. And you just called it the looking at the colonial people. And that's the whole, that's the whole caption, right? And this, but then some of them have these incredibly long histories of the photographer, the women, especially as we get into the, the later parts of the collection where we, we know more about the subjects. And so speaking of which, mm-hmm. you organize it kind of interestingly, you don't organize it chronologically because your first yeah. period is 1900s to 1970s, which you call the African masters. Then the colonial studio, um, 1870 to 1957. So you move back a little bit, but there's overlap. And then dressing and undressing is 1900 to 1940. And then you move into, then this, this is the only part that really is chronological, which is the much more modern period of 1957 and 1970s, where you look at independence and post-dependence. Mm-hmm. So that's a, I think it, it really helps the way you've organized it. So could you tell us maybe a little bit more about how you see the interconnection of the big parts of the book? I'd love to dive into the individual arguments and mm-hmm. in some specific photographs, but it, I thought it was an interesting way to organize it because I expected it to be chronological. And then once again, you say, nope, I'm not going to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. So what did you
1: do instead, right? What's the logic there?
0: The logic was really guided by, so there are 120 some photographs in the book. And the idea was to kind of lay out the images and see what narrative emerged from the images rather than trying to impose a lot of my own ideas on them. Of course, I am imposing my ideas on them, but sure, yeah. I'm <laughs> allowing them to kind of speak <laughs> to my ideas. and. Yeah. Um, The idea with the first chapter, the African Masters, was to really privilege those photographs where the power imbalance was the least. So there's a gender Mm -hmm. imbalance there. We have very little record of um, African female photographers, although they did exist. They were few and far between, not well documented. Um, And I wanted to let those kind of glorious studio photographs that were more honorific or where you really feel like the sitter's um, sense of themselves is intact and Hmm. and let that frame everything that comes after it. So by the time we get to the colonial studio and by colonial studio, I really mean all the studios that were set up under a colonial economy. So even if the photographer was African, it's still being, what, what happened in the studio was still mediated by these politics of the larger society. And so we have those initial images to kind of frame what comes later where you start to see the unease and some of the um, imbalances in power, or in some cases where like in the dressing and undressing chapter where I really look at nudes and I look at nudity as a kind of a textile and a fashion, the way that skin was fashioned either with tattooing or with um, with you know, with cutting or other kind of scarification as a, as a means of clothing, not just full nudity all the time, but um, where cloth and art on the skin were intentionally put up against each other. So that that's really the, that's the logic in it to say, okay, we, we established the master narrative through the master lens, the African photographers who have become part of the art world, or even if they're unknown studios, unrecognized photographers, they are working in that same tradition, and then start to move into the more difficult areas of, of what we see.
1: Yeah, it, well, it's such a cool way to organize it, because when the time periods are overlapping, you can see that it was never all this kind of gaze, and never all that kind of gaze. Exactly. There yes. were always dynamics of, of power. Certainly, one winning over others at different times coincide with history. But I mean, it's a really, I can't believe how much you've done just through the organization alone uh, in terms of helping these images make a different kind of sense to people who might assume this to just be another, Oh, pre-colonial, everybody was a victim of the cameras gaze And then post-colonial, everybody was independent and proud. Yeah.
0: I mean, I have people that have told me that they have not picked up the book for that reason, because they have a certain, set of expectations or they flipped open the book and saw one or two images and wanted to put it back down. And so I've had to argue that you have to keep going, you know, like my intention is to really push past the things that we think we know about what this all is.
1: Well, you also have to, because I I do some, I'm I'm by no means a photographer, but I'm a visual rhetorician. And so you you ask this really provocative question at the beginning of the first chapter where you're looking at what you call the African masters, right? So Mm -hmm. the the looking on their own terms chapter, so to speak. And you ask, uh, you say, so in these portraits, the women seem to have the power to undo all that has been inscribed in the colonial lens. What have these female sitters authored? both with their highly intentional displays of fashion and far more poignantly with what they communicate in that brief moment of a glance that triggers the shutter's snap. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you have to do in this chapter is you really have to be willing to look at the photograph the way that you look at the photograph Mm -hmm. because some of them, it's an easy sell. And then others, I really had to take my time because my initial instinct was to think, oh, colonial gaze, because I've been taught to look that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But even things like, some of them have a smirk versus not a smirk. I mean, it, it takes a fair amount of, of detail orientation, which you guide us through beautifully with the little vignettes and the descriptions that you add. So I really appreciate the work that you've done. And I can see how some people might pick it up and say, oh, nope, it's, it's a no-go. But yeah, if anybody is feeling that way, go through the whole thing. You'll feel differently after you do all 120 photographs, right? Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't cherry pick. So do you want to maybe pick one of your favorites or an exemplar from that, that African masters section and just describe it to us and, and make the argument. Cause I'd love to talk about all the images but I just feel like that'll be frustrating for someone not, not being able to look. So to yeah. Be. Yeah.
0: Let's, let's see. Um, one favorite of mine is yeah, there's a, there's a Seda Keda photograph. It's actually um, the first one that appears. It's on page six of the book. And it's a woman who, she's in the studio. She's kind of squatting down. She has a black and white striped dress. And her hair, she her head is tied. She has some kind of fancy Western jewelry on. And she has a kind of dangling pearl earring. Um, her dress is very European styled and has this kind of fancy trim details of things that were obviously imported and would have been costly. Um, Mm. Her headscarf is a Dutch fabric and it's tied in a style that's named after de Gaulle, the French president. And that style became a very popular one by Senegalese and Malian women and was a tribute to de Gaulle, the colonial chief, but it was also a tribute to the Francophone African soldiers who worked in segregated units um, during World War II and did tours in Europe and in other places, and then were repatriated to a legendary camp in Senegal on the outskirts of a military post. And they were left there for a long time, awaiting payment payment of their salaries. And then 300 of the men decided to strike in 1944 after sitting there in the camp for months and having wages without, and they were were murdered by French soldiers one night Mm -hmm. in the middle of the strike. And so it's a example of what I like about the fashions is they're kind of, they're pointing towards very complex histories. Although on Mm -hmm. the surface, we think that's a beautiful headscarf. And it was, we recognize it was a style of the day, but women were wearing it intentionally marking both the elegance of you know, the imagined French capital that de Gaulle represents, and then also looking at the seriousness of this kind of social history and the loss to Senegalese society and to families. So that's a lot of what I'm doing with the book is, is kind of investigating the sartorial and what it says, you what know, the deeper social meaning was and what kind of social history was pointed there. And, you know, somebody asked me recently about my own relationship to fashion, and I was saying that I grew up in a, a fair, well, actually a very conservative household. My mother didn't care much about fashion, thought it was very, um, that it was shallow, mm. that it shouldn't be indulged, and it had fairly, we weren't religious, but almost had very, um, you know, <laughs> very Protestant notions of mm of clothing and their use, that it should be well-made and utilitarian. And I remember that she always insisted with me that, she was a historian, she always insisted that I had to look much deeper, that I shouldn't care about this thing, that I should look into more serious subjects. And so I was thinking a lot that as I was putting the book together, I was in a, answering to her in a lot of ways and saying that there is substance in this. And that substance actually comes from a world that you would have eschewed, that you would not have respected. So it was kind of, it's very much a tribute to her and also a pushback against that notion that fashion doesn't matter.
1: Well, sure, you're doing exactly what your mother asked you to do. Yep. <laughs> you're just doing it with
0: fashion. Ah, and luckily so, she likes the book very much. So.
1: Oh, I was, that was going to be my next question. I didn't know if she was still with us, but yeah, I wanted that, to ask.
0: Yep, she is and she likes the book very much. But, but that, that really is the intention that clothing um, for African women is quite intentional. And, and it's about a highly constructed way of expressing what you see in the world and feel about the world around you.
1: Yeah, you add You have a beautiful sentence that you write right before uh, this photograph. Um, You say modernity could live in the eye as much as in an imported luxury in a relaxed pose, a self-possession and a certain court of the lens. And what's really interesting about this photograph is it's taken down. So she's Mm -hmm. crouched, not looking up at you. She's just sort of crouched looking and the photographers above her so Mm -hmm. there's a real interesting play on her as an object because her dress is obviously and you also make a comment that I found really fascinating um, that the black and white stripes of the sitter's dress evoke the Quran the infinity Mm -hmm. of God they mimic the architectural designs and complex patterning of the mosque and invoke spiritual measures of beauty, lest one become fixated on the beauty of the earthly sitter. Yes. And there is a sense, it's really not about her beauty, it's the symbol's beauty that she is the vessel for, if that makes yes. sense.
0: Yes, I think that's that's exactly right in this photo. And you see this, um, you see the same use of black and whites and particularly layered patterning where the curtain behind them may be one. Black and white pattern the floor, another mm. clothing, yet another, and that—that that is really where you see that kind of divinity that you would see in the construction of some mosques.
1: Yeah, it's a great. I'm glad you picked that one. It was—it was one that I thought. Really, I can see why it was this, the opening photo because it really helps yeah. showcase the themes of this chapter and the particular studio, right? Because in that one, you're looking at a studio or two photographers in particular who were very central to this this African masters. Um, mm-hmm. Teta and oh I'm, I wrote my notes Krista. down. Yeah, Mama yeah 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah do and you want to do the, another one from also this, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I don't know if you want to do another chapter or or another uh, sorry a pho- photograph from this chapter or if you want to move on but there's a lot in this chapter that's really engaging yeah, to look at. The, the one with all the portraits behind her
0: Yeah, okay, let's talk about that one. Yeah,
1: that's 1930. um, Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, this is um, page 24 in the book. And it's a photograph by an, it's an unknown photographer um, whose work is very, very important. It's been published quite a bit in some really seminal French books on African photography. And Mm -hmm. it's in the collection of Alagia Adamasila. Uh, Mr. Silla is an archivist himself and a painter, and he was responsible for a lot of the museum work from the 1940s till present. He's still alive and still working as an archivist informally. But this particular oh, wow. photo is of a young woman who who's really quite famous in photography. She and her sisters were, were chronicled quite a bit, and the photos have become very famous. But in this particular picture, she's sitting, she's in a sitting room and she's seated with other portraiture behind her on the wall and kind of elegant frames. And it, this was taken roughly 1930. And I like this photo quite a bit. Um, in, Sen- in Senegal in particular, photos were really seen as heirlooms. They were preserved, they were displayed. If somebody was married, They would, um, family members would go and gather photos from all around um, other families' houses and bring them and use them as decor in a wedding ceremony or something typical, you know, some other family event. So photography was, again, expensive and really revered and, and prized even more than in many other cultures so this is this is really kind of a grand display here this young woman would have been from a civil servant's family most likely and so they had some means but in Senegal in particular people would move but from one studio to the next there was a kind of aspirational quality so that the idea was that you might get a photograph with uh, a local African photographer and then move to somebody like um, Mama Cassette who was also Senegalese but had a fancier studio and then some people would prize going to the European studios or might move back and forth between them but photo taking for families of means was really something that was done almost it was almost an occasion in and of itself. So there might be a fancy party and you would dress and you go to the studio and have a photo taken. But that event of the studio could be as, as important as um, the wedding or, or mm. other, other event that they were attending. And they were really kept and cherished and, and Senegal probably had the most diversity and the most um, widespread taking of photos. So these are real treasures.
1: Yeah. And what I really like about this photo is that the the pictures of what I presume to be her family or ancestors uh, are kind of cluttered in the background. So mm-hmm. there's two rows and they're overlapping. Like they had to layer the photos on top of each other. They're framed on the wall. So mm-hmm. it, it's got this kind of excessive like pride quality and also a little like desperation and the civil servant class like they're trying to emulate what what you would imagine like the bourgeois the bourgeois would do which is a very yes. elegant photo so it's cool the way that the, even the arrangement of the photograph speaks to what's unique about this person's yeah. political class
0: position right yeah absolutely i mean it's you know in a european home it, they would have been hung with right. um, care for symmetry and that sort right of thing. and this yeah. um, this reflects much more the even the kinds of patterning and the layering of things in people's homes and the layering of dress so mm-hmm. I, I like that quite a bit about it, it gives it a, a really different kind of atmosphere
1: mm-hmm. yeah and it it's yeah. also
0: it reflects almost like the the way bodies assemble in homes and on the street where you know they're not in like uniform rows but they're they're kind of in mesh with each other and conversation with each other yeah I do like that West Africa is very contact driven you know even Hmm. even small interactions with people are very much like face to face and you know lots of talk and exchange and I think the photos have that same quality
1: yeah yeah I mean again so for listeners these are two of 30-40 photographs in this collection so you can see why taking your time to move through this book is, is so worthwhile. Well, let's, um, speaking of time, let's move on to chapter two, where you, where you start talking a little bit more about what I think I thought the book was going to be about and and was pleasantly Mm -hmm. surprised to find it wasn't only about, and that's the colonial studio, which you, you locate somewhere between 1870 and 1957. And so Mm -hmm. do you want to say a little bit about this chapter and then perhaps introduce uh, one of the photos that you find most exemplary? Yeah, this is, um, you know, again, the colonial
0: studio, I, what I mean by that is really every studio within this colonial economy. So some of these photographers are African and Asian and otherwise. And, um, you know, many of them are European as well, but I chose the European photographers who were doing something a little different from what people expect. So there's, mm. when you at the beginning of the chapter, There are photos by a man named Dunau. We don't know very much about him. I'm not even certain that that's the right spelling of his name. It's the closest that I could decipher, but Hmm. he's included in the photos at the end. He's written a note on each one and he's a European, a French um, colonial officer. So we see him photographed with his helmet on the ground, but he has, it's a whole series. I think there are 15 photos in total and they're just kind of lovely, free, the interaction between the sitter and Now has this kind of ease that I liked a lot. Mm. It's very unusual and it's unusual to, to have his image included as well, but there's, they're all presented in front of their houses and they're straight portraits, but there's just there's a kind of lovely ease in the body that you don't mm-hmm. see the other European um, made images. So working through the chapter, we see a lot of kind of interesting presentations. It moves through what were really typologies and the fondness for like of colonial typologies, the mother, the agrarian worker, um, the typologies of breasts and that sort of thing, although they're not, com- not included here. But I have these lovely images from um, Dakar studios and also from Guinea Conakry where people are wearing their finest, they're wearing prestige cloths and they're doing commission photos that represent who they see themselves as in the world and how they see their families. And they're just, they're really quite elegant. And then you get to see how that's juxtaposed against some of the more uncomfortable images as well. Mm. A lot of these, um, well, a lot of them, because photos were so costly to take, are images of women of real means who are, you know, merchants and nobles and people in society who have um, access to the studios and knew the value of the photos that they were taken. And then there are others, like there's a kind of odd photo of a woman. We don't know the photographer. It was taken roughly around 1870, but it's a woman who would have been in the colonial zoos, the French um, Jardin mm. d'Acclimatation. I'm not, my French is terrible, so please excuse me. <laughs> yeah,
1: so it's mine, no worries.
0: <laughs> but um, she's someone who may have been in Napoleon III's famous Paris Zoo when it was um, converted into a human zoo. And she sits in a studio with very elegant beads. She's obviously someone of means, but she's wearing this really curious costume and if she was there, um, at that time, then she was obviously pressed into, um, you know, pressed into service.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so there, oh. there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about the woman who, who's nude except for the, the, what looks to be like gemstone belt?
0: Oh no, but that is a, that's a very similar. Okay. Oh, this, I see. This it. is on page 59, the
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. I had some questions so it's a little bit later. Cause I had some questions about the photos, which is like, I feel sort of conflicted about this particular set of photos because they do seem to be, you say something really awesome. You say something about the erotic. Oh, I can't remember it, but you say that it's, it's sort of this combination of the, the erotic and the sublime, right. The, mm-hmm. the, the, other, the Africanist other, like, so to use Tony Morrison there's like an eroticism and also a sublimity and I can see the photo wanting to evoke that in me but then I'm also kind of like oh you know like nobody should have been doing this but I but also I can't so how do you how do you how do you feel I guess this is a weird question but when you look at these not as an analyst but just emotionally Mm -hmm. what what do they evoke for you
0: they evoke a lot of different things I mean some of them again where the sitter is in possession in some way and that's Fairly rare with the nudes, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most of the nudes, I think we have to assume that there was coercion or that there's yeah, I agree something yeah. there. Um, you know, it's troubling because I see them for what they are, obviously, and at the same time, some some of the women are so they're so beautiful and there's yes. so much complex emotion in their yeah presentation, and I guess I get caught up in that more than more than anything like some people kind of shut down their reactions they they note the coercion and they shut the whole thing down and for Mm -hmm. me I'm more fascinated with the details of these things and I guess because I'm also constantly examining images of black women now and Mm -hmm. how you know I think the thing that we have to keep reminding ourselves is that we consume a lot that's very very disquieting mm-hmm. and we don't question it, you know, mm-hmm. we consume more than they, than ever was consumed in periods like this. So in our day, one walk through Instagram or a few television commercials or whatever we see, we're seeing black women in, you know, very, very uncomfortable places. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, we we're kind of immune or a to some of that. And so I guess I, I could, I'm kind of asking when I teach and I use the, the material, I'm asking people to sit with it for a while yeah. and to see what else is there. There's, there's another image later in the book of a girl who's in a chair. She's obviously in a colonial household. She's in a chair. She, her breasts are bared and she's leaning back and she has a, this big smile. And mm-hmm. you be mistaken for a minute and then you look down at her feet and the angle of her feet. And you can see that all the tension and mm. all the protest is is located there in her feet. It's a very strange photo. So I guess I feel like we miss a lot if we just keep, um, if we're not willing to look.
1: Yeah, and I, and, and I also think you're speaking lo- to Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Looking
0: <laughs> all the time at, at these. Yeah, we're looking at all the time at these kind of things, right? And we're consuming things like we're consuming Cardi B, we're consuming Megan yeah. Thee Stallion, <laughs> and we're consuming all kinds of things on television, on Instagram, that are maybe even more deeply troubling because we're so much further along, and we should be thinking better. You know, we should be doing better. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah. And, and as if it's an alibi that they quote unquote chose it because yeah. that is like, did that right? Like the, where do you, even, yeah. where's the logic of that? That's problematic as well. and exactly. so The fact that, the fact that you can, you, you can guess historically, some of these women were quite literally coerced into these photos, but you mm-hmm. can argue that these women are not, you still can't ever get away from, well, they must be coerced because they're they're still descendants of legacies of coercion. Either way, right? Yeah, I mean,
0: just yeah. layers and layers and layers. So with the book, I'm really asking people to look, you know, to really yeah. look because there've mm-hmm. been some recent and things where they talk about um, African women and the gaze, and it's all mm. about what's going on in the eyes, and I think the eyes are very important. And then I think that also has become kind of simplistic, and that we mm. need to much deeper and go much further behind that because the the thing with the gaze is it tells us one kind of story but you know it's like the the body is also you know the eyes are also um what what goes into the eye is played out in the body
1: and yeah I just, well like you just said with the feet it, or they contradict
0: yeah exactly right
1: yeah exactly. And you have to read
0: between them and you oh, know so, so good yeah so so i i, I really i think that's um Important to do. And then there are also times where you see women that um, seem to be coerced and are most likely coerced, but they are eating that camera. You know, like mm. their eye. There's almost there's a dialogue with the camera that is so powerful. That mm. and I saw that I was shooting a little bit in Namibia with Tabisa Sakala, who's a photographer. He died a couple of years ago. But we set up an ambulance studio in Namibia and we were doing these really interesting street photographs of women. They were around Mm. fashion and around, we're also examining the legacy of the genocide of 1904. Mm. And again, it was just, um, I expected one thing because we all have kind of a script in our head about what happened with colonialism and the camera. These women were, (laughs) they, they were second generation genocide survivors. And they were just they were eating his camera. He's a South African man. There were also kinds of power dynamics that a lot of people would not have expected. And there was also a way that they were just they were dominant to him. You could almost feel
1: him step back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to look at. Yeah, I, there really is. And then then you even get into the issue. So you'd mentioned in the beginning that, that of, of skin as the first cloth or skin mm-hmm. as a kind of cloth. And so we really get into that extra layer of detail in chapter three, which you title dressing and undressing. And so how, how does how does sort of cloth and skin come complicate the, or not complicate, but just nuance the previous two chapters in chapter three? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, okay. the Probably the most uncomfortable photo for some people is it's on page it's on page 129 it's a woman with a fairly masculine body she's wearing some kind of funny brooks and she's holding a cu- uh like a bowl mm. you look at it as a mirror while she ties her head and she has on a lovely earring and she has also these beads at her, you know, just below the knee at the top of her calf. And her back is turned to us. And th- this photo is really wonderful to me because here's a, obviously a European photographer. He's making this nude portrait. She, there's something, you know, just thoroughly abject about this woman.
1: Um,
0: and yet his eye is on her body. And the first thing that I recognized about her was the, the beads at her knees. Mm. They're, they're costly beads. And they were worn by women at their knees to, to shape the calf and to accentuate the shape of the calf, which was one of the most erotic zones of the body. Oh, interesting. So this photographer has his eye on the usual, you know, like the usual places that the eye is supposed to go. And then here's someone that's representing their their beauty in a very different way. And so I think, like, how did she feel about herself? And how did she feel about representing herself in a a way that was erotic? Mm. And what were the things that would have been important to that for her? So it's a kind of twist on the narrative of, it doesn't take away from the issues of power here, but it's a twist on the narrative and what we think that we know about that. So the colonial photographers were all about the breaths you know, the European colonial photographers, African photographers, never. I don't think I've seen a single shot of a bare-breasted woman.
1: Oh, fascinating.
0: I really haven't. If someone finds some, I would love to see them, but I've never seen one. And it's almost like a a mismatching of cues, the things that she's signifying and projecting and what's being seen. So that's why I like this photo a lot.
1: Oh, it's incredible to look at these through your eyes i mean i almost wish i'd looked at them once without reading
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and then once again with your brain and eyes because it really would be interesting to see what i saw or didn't see prior to and also you know i'm white and 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 that ma- right i think that matters too because i think you mm-hmm. look at these differently if you don't have ident- if you don't have strong identification yeah i would you think know, it is you it's, know it's a-
0: and it also, some of it is just really study. You know, I wouldn't have known, most people don't even see the beads at her, at her calves. Yeah. Or would have known the meanings of
1: them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's just such a good book. I can't, I know. I, I need to stop fangirling over the book and be analytical, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not good at it. <laughs> and do you want to say anything else about this particular? Because you, <laughs> kind of uh, you end with kind of an interesting photo too that reminds me of the one we just talked about. So the one on page... 151, which is uh, what what like a lounge pose, but again taken from behind, so you do see mm-hmm. sort of the very top of this woman's breast because she's turned toward the camera, but yeah, she's not. Again, she's more looking away. She's but she but the thing that about this photo is she's not looking back at herself, which I thought changed the previous photo a little bit because we're looking at her back. She's looking away from us, but she's mm-hmm. looking at herself in the bowl. And this woman is just kind of like. Staring into her, like toward her knee, is kind of what it looks like.
0: Yeah, I mean, just... she she looks very directed, you know.
1: Yeah, that's the yeah,
0: I agree. Is directed, but these yeah. like these ados photographs, the photographs from the back are a particular colonial legacy, mm-hmm. and you see with some of the, um, and I think it comes out of the whole the work of cataloging, and mm-hmm. you know there was a kind of directive from the top colonial officers that the camera should be used to catalog, divide and conquer. And so Mm -hmm. there was a, a charge that, you know, go out, go into the hinterland, go everywhere you can and do the work of cataloging races, et cetera. And I think, so that's where you see those kinds of like photos from the back, photos from the side. And they do have that kind of erotic quality later on um in the 50s going you see some african photographers take up the whole ados vernacular and Mm -hmm. you'll see malik sidibe has a lot of those photographs of the back there are other other photographers who did the same but um what's very very different and really interesting about that is that for most african women you know europeans put everything on the breast and Africans put everything on the buttocks. Hmm. And so when you see, it's a different kind of eroticization. Mm. So, and the the lens moves to a different place and it's not, it's more celebratory. So when you see people's Mm. backs, it's more kind of celebratory thing. Like a woman with a good behind is not just, it's not just an erotic, but it's an idea of strength there's a kind of appreciation of beauty it it just takes on different meanings and Mm. it's not necessarily like a strict eroticized gaze at a woman's behind whereas in the colonial cataloging there's like endless breasts they're eroticized Mm. or they're made into these objects that are um like disgusting in some way, right? Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like malformed, and you know, all of these kind of pejorative things.
1: As if, as if any woman has breasts and aren't. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> it's like it's such a, it's such an it's yeah. But I mean, you know, looking back, it's always easy to say, "Oh, look at all this." And you make that comment. You say that these photograph these photographs the the ones that were taken by the Europeans. We have to remember they weren't just they were intimately tied to pseudoscience, essentially that justified. Yes, all kinds of racism. And so that was a good point to make, because sometimes you kind of get in these archives and you forget these became scientific evidence, which looking back now seems ridiculous. But it was it felt so true back then. And it was so such a tool of oppression. Then all of a sudden, at the end of that chapter, as we move into the last chapter, there's suddenly this photograph of what I think is roughly the 1960s, 1970s of these three clothed women. They're modern. They're looking at you. They're out. They're different expressions. So you can tell we're moving into a new kind. So you make a very abrupt transition that really helps to shape the argument that emerges in the final chapter about uh, independence, post-independence photography and fashion, 1957 to 1970. So tell us about that and the aunties. Are we we on 163? So the the three women
0: here are actually, this is a collage that's done from images in the collection by Frida Oropabo, who is a wonderful, wonderful artist. She lives in Oslo. She's Nigerian and Norwegian. And she is, she went into the archive, particularly for this book, and did a series of collages so that we could kind of look at the images for what they are, and then also look at a narrative that you know, kind of winds its way around some of the, mm. the deeper issues that we've been talking about. So here she's talking about independence and its celebration, but there's the snake and there's something that almost looks like a corpse mm. on the table. So these are um, these are special collages and I, I hope everybody has time to to take a look at them. But here we're looking at independence, so 1957, Ghana becomes the first independent African nation, and then other nations follow suit. So there's a cluster just after Ghana, and then there's some gaps. Um, and over the next roughly 20 years, most African nations will go through the same process of of independence. And so the studios shift in a big way. They become they lose some of their formality, and they really start to represent the aspirations of people on the verge of you know, owning the ground that they live on again. And fashion in particular becomes um, very interesting because you see the earlier portraits by people like Malik Malik Sidibe and Seidu Keita, where women are wearing very quote unquote African or traditional dress. And, you know, you see all of the, what we think of as kind of indigenous fashion. And then we move into the post-colonial era and women are wearing more and more kind of Europeanized style clothing. And um, they're even going into like American pop culture where they're, you know, wearing cowboy cowboy gear or things that allude to, you know, the psychedelics or (laughs) Jimi Hendrix and James Brown and other musical traditions and and musical personalities. And people start to ask, they look at the surface of those photos and ask, well, how is what what has been lost or what's spoiled with independence that people are wearing and moving towards American culture. And mm. the truth is that people are taking, you know, Africans of that era were sure they were part of a, a global economy, even though we don't we think of globalism as something more recent. And they're taking the kind of signs and symbols of what is American or what is European and turning them into their own expression of what is African. And it's Mm. something that you can kind of use if you just stick with the surface. But so when you get to a portrait, like on 161, there's a woman in a sheer lace boo-boo and Mm. she's wearing the boo-boo, the big traditional dress, and she's wearing... Um, bell bottoms and platform shoes. And that as much as you could say is playing on American culture is also a way of kind of contesting the grip of the new power structure that comes up um, post-independence, because it's a kind of questioning of religious structures and their parents' ideas about what was seen as fit for the new nation so you saw this wild kind of rebellion and in a lot of societies like Mali and um, some of the countries in the Sahel young people would start to grow afros wear more risk wear miniskirt quote unquote risque clothing and um, you know the the society would bite back people would put them in what they called re-education camps so young people oh, were caught. Wow. taught how to be indigenous, how to re-embrace what was real. And at the same time, those young people were looking at like the portraits of their parents in the Seducata studios and say, you were actually pretenders. You were wearing the Mm. clothing of what you say is this Africa, but in fact, you were trying to be as close as you could to European ideals. Mm. And you were going into those studios and taking on the props and all of the things that were European and, and saying that they were yours, but in fact, not Africanizing them, just mimicking. Right. Them. So, so mm-hmm. that's a lot of what I like about this period is that kind of dialogue back and forth. And you see people in miniskirts who obviously went out, um, you know, snuck out of the house, with a traditional boo-boo over what they wore and then discarded it and went, went to these kind of parties. Mm-hmm. A photographer like um, Malik Sidibe made famous. And then you see also um, evidence of the Kennedy era, John Kennedy, um, our president was sending secondhand clothing to West Africa in particular, as part of this idea of new aid. So I, a lot of people will, will remember how Nestle formula was killing babies in West Africa in the seventies, eighties. And that was all, Mm. or, you know, they were, there was mass starvation because the only food available was like bulgur wheat and other things that were coming from the U S grains and staple foods that had no nutritional value whatsoever. Mm. So Mm. this era of aid to Africa and um, it was coming in the form of, of our discarded clothing and, foods
1: that had nutrition like the it's such a I mean a whole century you I mean it's a lot packed in to a 200 page book to cover this much history (laughs) and you do it I mean it's so effectively done through the clothing shifts right because visually so much of that work is done that you don't have to lay pages and pages and pages and pages of context because you can (laughs) see it happening right in the photograph yep absolutely There's so much more we could talk about. Is there anything else you want to highlight about the book or tell us about upcoming projects? I know you've got our virtual speaking tour going on. So Mm -hmm. anything there you want to leave us with before we wrap? Yeah, there's
0: there's quite a lot of um, activity going on. You can, if you go to my Instagram, the McKinley collection with underscores between each word, um, you can keep up with the virtual events. And we're just, you know, I'm hoping to pick up on some of the the um, plans for exhibitions here and in West Africa that started before the pandemic. And otherwise, Mm. I'm enjoying this. I'm loving conversations like this and the interactions that I'm getting from readers. It's really been a lot of fun.
1: Well, yeah, and you've been everywhere. I I asked if you were on Twitter because everyone's tweeting about you, but you're not, and you had (laughs) a piece come out in the New York Times and yeah, it's been great.
0: Yeah, no, it's been really fantastic. More than I could have ever imagined because um, unfortunately, African subjects are still very much sidelined, and you know, in publishing and in our culture. So
1: I can't thank you enough for the book, and I just again want to remind readers uh, that the, the, we've been speaking. Well, I've been I don't know why I said the royal we, but I've been speaking with Catherine E. McKinley, author of the African Lookbook: A Visual History of Hundred Years of American Women. I cannot urge you enough to get a copy of the book. Uh, but if you're not interested, because you know, maybe we've we've sated your appetite. It's a really awesome thing to request or even better, purchase a hard copy of the book to make a donation to your local library. Uh, libraries don't have a great budget. Bloomsbury Press that published the book does an excellent job. The work should be rewarded. And also we want to get this into circulation for other folks, right? You can imagine how awesome it would be for a Instagram obsessed young woman or so to walk in, pick up this book and start to flip through and, and how much it opened, it's opened our horizons in just an hour. So imagine if we could get this book into more hands and so one way to do that is buy your own copy but another way is to donate one especially to libraries that need more of this kind of work and with that uh we had discussed maybe Catherine people could connect with you on Instagram mm-hmm. at the African lookbook so the underscore African underscore lookbook which I've also linked in the show notes and you accept direct messages and also the uh, your website is also in the show notes um if anyone would like to, to contact you there
0: Yep, absolutely. I'm
1: happy to hear from people. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for coming. And again, for the book. I mean, it's thank just. You for having me. Thanks for yeah. being such a great host. Oh, yeah. Well, you're welcome. It's easy when the books are this good. All right. Well, thank you, Catherine. And thank you, everyone listening. Stay safe, keep washing your hands, wear your masks, and stay tuned for another episode of New Books Network coming soon. Bye bye.